Welcome to Alger Assembly of God. Welcome back into our study on the book of Ruth. We began that last week together. It is a series on that book, and it's a it's a great book. It's a great story, uh, but it's maybe not as universally known. Universally known would be John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Many people, uh, even non-Christians, are uh, aware of John 3.16. Uh, maybe not as many or everyone would be as familiar with the book of Ruth. It's been said that when Benjamin Franklin was abroad as our United States representative in Europe, he would often gather together a rather large and fashionable company of individuals telling them that he had come across a most remarkable piece of oriental literature, as he said, he would read to them the book of Ruth. And when he finished, all would express their great delight and asked him how he came across such an incredible piece of literature because the book itself and its writing and, and uh, as he would read it, they would just connect with that and he would smile and tell them that it was from the Bible from God's word. And so little by little, you and I, we're going to be going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this powerful little book. Remember, it's only four chapters, only 85 verses long. And we gave you a challenge last time together. Hopefully you've taken, taken me up on that offer, either to read that entire book or at the very least to have finished chapter 1. I trust that you have because we're, we're going to be completing chapter 1 today. But what we looked at last week was more of that introduction. We saw that the book of Ruth, it's sandwiched in between the book of Judges and then First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. So you literally could place the book of Ruth inside the time period of the Judges. What was Judges? Uh, we said that was a, a time and a season of life uh, through many different years where the people of Israel, God's individuals, would sin against him. There would be consequences. They would then call out and repent to God, and then God would hear and deliver them through a man or a woman called a judge, a deliverer. They'd experience peace until eventually they would sin and turn their backs on God. It was that cycle that we were looking at. And so it's in the midst of that backdrop during this season of the book of Judges that Ruth is taking place. And what we said last time together is that the book of Judges, in that season, the unthinkable would become the norm. The sin, things that you would, you would never imagine that an Israelite, a follower of God, would do these things and would seek after these other lands and their gods turn and, and submit to them instead of the one true God, but that would become the norm. And we said that that was very much applicable to today in our culture. The things that would be unthinkable years and years ago, there's no way that our culture, there's no way that our society would turn against God and, and allow this to be the norm. That's what's taking place. So that's the culture here of uh, the season of the judges and where the book of Ruth is taking place. What we saw is that God works in and through and oftentimes in spite of our bad decisions. So last week we, be, we began by looking at bad decisions. Uh, you know, when someone says, hey, I've got good news and bad news, what do you want first? 
Uh, Many times people say, well, give me the bad news, right? Let's end on good news. We didn't just choose which to do. We we began looking at those first five verses of Ruth chapter 1, and we saw some pretty bad decisions. And what we found out was that bad decisions will abandon God, or better yet, when we abandon God, it leads us to make bad decisions, which oftentimes create consequences, and those consequences oftentimes impact others. We think our choices, we think our will, we think our decisions only impact me. But many times they impact family, they impact coworkers, they impact a church, a culture, a society. And so we saw that, these opening verses of the book of Ruth, we met Elimelech. A man whose name means God is king. My God is king. But he left the land of Israel, took his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, and they left for Moab, a sinful place completely against God. During that process, they left because there was a famine in the land. And and rather than staying to see what can we learn and how can we trust God and, and continue with him, they left, went to sinful Moab, The two boys married Moabite women. Elimelech dies. The two sons die. And now it's Naomi and two daughters-in-law in in a foreign land. So last time together, we explored bad decisions. Today, we're going to continue by completing chapter 1, but we're going to flip it. We're going to be looking at good decisions. So Turn with me back to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 6. We said last week that decisions determine our direction. Decisions determine direction. Some people would say, well, decisions determine destiny. And and sometimes I think when we think or hear about destiny, we think, well, it's just automatic and it's going to happen. And so I kind of prefer that word direction, that the decisions we make determine the direction of our lives. So we don't want to make bad decisions. We want to make good decisions. And so first of all, I think what we'll see is that good decisions return to God. Or much like last week, if you flip it around, when we turn or return to God, it leads us and helps us make good decisions. Verse 6, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. God and his blessings were being made known. God was blessing in Israel. God was blessing back in Judah, the place where they had left, and those those blessings were being made known all the way into the land of Moab. She heard about it. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab, check this out, to return to her homeland. Naomi, her husband, her sons had left the land of God, the land of God's blessing and protection. All kinds of stuff happened. And now, guess what? Naomi and her daughters-in-law, they're ready to return. Verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. They were going to return. They're taking the road that leads them back. Let me encourage you with this. 
It is never too late to turn to or return back to God. Maybe, maybe you here in person or watching or listening online, you think, I've done too much. I've turned my back on God. I've never turned to him even a first time. It's too late for me. Listen, it is never too late to turn to God for the very first time or maybe to turn back, to return to him. They'd been in Moab 10 plus years and now after all of these difficulties had happened, they hear God's blessing, God's doing some incredible things. Man, maybe we should get around where God is. Isn't that a good decision? To turn to God, to return to him when life is difficult doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but turn or return to God. The famine had ended. Blessings are happening. Crops are forming. She made the decision to return to a place she probably never should have left. Sometimes that sounds an awful lot like us. Maybe that's described to you at one point. You gave your life to Jesus Christ. You lived for him for a portion of time, for a season. And by virtue of circumstances or by virtue of little by little walking away from God, you've turned you back, you, you walked away, and you realize, I've got to turn my life back to him. I never should have left in the first place. That's kind of Naomi here. Maybe that describes you. Maybe at one point you had surrendered. Maybe you had given your life to Jesus Christ, uh, but you've made your own choices, made your own decisions, and little by little you had stepped away, crept away from God. It's never too late to turn back, to return to God, or maybe for you for the very first time to turn to him. You've headed down a wrong path. You've made wrong decisions by abandoning God or, or never knowing God in the first place. You can turn or return to God. Even if you've, you've gone away from, strayed from his will, his plan, his desire found in his word, you can turn back to God. It is never too late. Let me also encourage you with this. When you turn to him for the first time or return back to God, he will welcome you with open arms. I think about the New Testament story that Jesus told. Maybe you're familiar, the prodigal son, right? The father had two boys, and, and the younger one says, I want my inheritance now. The father gives it to him he leaves, he spends that entire life savings and inheritance on wild and sinful living. He's broke, has nowhere to turn, except he turns back and runs back to the Father. He basically says, I hope he accepts me even as a hired hand. Maybe he'll hire me back. The scripture says that the Father ran to the Son with arms open and blessed him put the ring on his finger, the, the robe on his back, and, and they had a, a celebration, a party, because the son who had left had returned. Sometimes maybe we think or people think, I've done something wrong. I, I don't know. Would God accept me? Sometimes you and I have those thoughts with people, right? 
Because at times we've done wrong. We've, we've said something, we've done something, and, and then we're not sure if we want to apologize, and so we go longer and longer and longer and longer, and the more, we, uh, the more time in between, the harder it is to turn back and to try to make things right. In our minds we think, well, if I go back to try to make things right, what are they going to say? Here's the encouragement. No matter what it is that you've done in your past, when you turn to or return to God, he'll welcome you with open arms. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22, the Lord says this to his people. He says, I've swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me. Check this out. For I have paid the price to set you free. That's Old Testament Isaiah, but it sounds an awful lot like the New Testament, an awful lot like Easter coming up here in a number of weeks, how Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. God's telling the Israelites in Isaiah, return to me for I've paid the price. Just come. Return. Turn back to me. Finally, after all these years, Naomi is returning back to the land of God, the land of his blessing. But the encouragement for you and I isn't geographical about going to a city or to a place. It's about turning to or returning to God. He's encouraging us. I've paid the price for your sins. Let's turn from our sins and turn to God. The Bible speaks about that as repentance. When we turn to God, we turn from sins. We leave the old life of sin and our past in the past. God's not worried about your past. He desires to forgive it. We're often really, really worried. Man, does he know what I did back then? We, we try to keep our past covered up. God says, I don't want to simply uncover it. I want to cleanse it. I want to forgive it. Come to me. Turn to me. Repent, I'll cleanse and forgive you of your sins. Man or woman, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, it doesn't matter what's taken place in your life, no matter what you've done, turn or return to God. No matter how long maybe you've walked away from God, return to him. No matter the bad decisions perhaps you've made in your life leading up to this point, turn or return to God. It's a great, not just a good decision, that's a great decision to turn to or to return to God. That's what happens. Good decisions take place when we turn our lives, when we surrender our lives, when we return to the God who loves us and cares for us. Return to God. Secondly, good decisions require a wholehearted devotion wholehearted devotion so verse 7 says they took the road that would lead back to judah so they're in judah originally at the beginning of the book elimelech naomi the sons left judah for moab they married moabite women elimelech dies the two sons die it's just naomi and the two daughters-in-law and then god's word here in chapter one says they begin 
back. They turn back the road that would take them to Judah. But verse 8, notice, on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes. Fascinating, right? Here she is seemingly doing the right thing of turning back and returning to God and to the land of his blessing. And then she's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Daughters-in-law, you can go back to Moab. She's encouraging them not to come with her, but to go back. Now, there's different thoughts and speculations. Some of the uh, theologians and Bible scholars would say, perhaps it's because maybe she's trying to cover up a little bit of her past. I mean, Naomi was married to Elimelech and had these two sons, and they left Israel. They left Judah. They left Bethlehem for Moab, the sinful place. And while there, what happened? Whether it was before or after Elimelech's death, the two boys married two Moabite women, but then the two sons died. So now she's got two daughters-in-law who are what? Moabite women. Some would speculate or theorize that perhaps if she headed back to the land of God and his blessing, everyone's going to know what happened. Okay, the son's not around, the, the husband's not around, but these are the daughters-in-law and they're Moabite women. You allowed your Israelite sons to marry outside, to marry these sinful Moabite women. Perhaps. But whatever the case, whatever the reason, it seems like she's saying, don't come with me. Go back to Moab. And so we're going to look at the, the rest of this passage. In fact, on a number of occasions and with a number of different reasons, she's trying to convince them to leave and not come with her. And so I want to talk a little bit about our wholehearted devotion to God. Wholehearted devotion is going to overlook flattery. Check it out in verse 8, the rest of 8. She speaks to the two women. She says, may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Interesting. Flattery. Now, you and I, we enjoy some compliments, right? I mean, who doesn't love a good compliment? But going a little overboard, those compliments sometimes turn into flattery. You know, someone just trying to butter you up to get you to do something for them. And it's interesting, the flattery she's saying is, may the Lord bless you. How is she wanting the Lord to bless them? With the security of another marriage, you're a Moabite woman, go back to your sinful Moabite land, go marry a sinful Moabite man, but may God bless you. Does that not quite make sense? Flattery. Sometimes you and I, in trying to live for the Lord, might receive some flattery, trying to butter you up to do something they want you to do, which is maybe not what God would want you to do. If you and I are going to have a wholehearted devotion to God, we'll overlook flattery. Wholehearted devotion to the Lord also will overlook emotion. Verse 9, she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Sometimes people will try to use emotion to tug at your heartstrings and your emotion to do something that's away from and apart from and against God. 
If you and I are going to have a wholehearted devotion to seek and to serve him, uh, we'll overlook flattery, we'll overlook emotion. In fact, we'll overlook somebody's arguments and reasoning. Check it out in verse 10. Initially, they said, no. We, that's both Ruth and Orpah, both daughters-in-law said, we want to go with you to your people. So Naomi tries again, verse 11. Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? This is part of the day and culture when a son would die. Many times it was another brother who would marry that daughter-in-law, that, that sister-in-law, and kind of take them under their wings and under their household. But hey, Naomi lost both of her sons. She says, I don't have another son, and could I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. I mean, she's laying it on thick. She's arguing and reasoning Time after time after time. Listen, I'm up in age. I'm probably not even of the age or able to find anybody for a husband. Even if I did find a husband, I'm up in age. I don't think I could even have a son. And even if I did have a son, are you going to wait years and years and years for him to grow up and then marry him? I mean, she's saying argument and reasoning and argument and reasoning. Here's all the reasons why you should turn back. You see, wholehearted devotion is going to overlook arguments and reasoning. is going to turn your heart and your life to God and what he desires. Verse 13 continues. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself raised his fist against me. She's bringing God into it. Life is tough and it's his fault. Arguments and reasoning. There's all kinds of individuals and people who want to get you to live a half-hearted life for the Lord as opposed to a wholehearted life of commitment and devotion and dedication to God. You're going to overlook flattery, overlook emotion, overlook reasoning. You're going to overlook even peer pressure. Verse 14, again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Ruth and Orpah had left Moab on their way back to Judah, but Naomi's encouragement and arguments finally went out, Orpah heads back to Moab. She was a half-hearted woman of indecision. First she says, I'm coming. No, I'm staying. Well, now that you mention it, I think I will go back home. Heading back where? To a sinful Moab. Heading back where? Away from God. It's interesting that Naomi would want to keep them from this land of God and the land of his blessing, pushing them back to a sinful Moab. But check this out. Ruth clung, uh, Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, she said, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Naomi, who's chosen to go back to the land of Israel, Judah, Bethlehem, the land of God, the land of his blessing, she's saying, listen, Ruth, Orpah's going back to her home, sinful Moab. She's heading back to her gods, 
useless, know-nothing gods of Moab. I mean, you ought to as well. You've heard the phrase. Maybe you've used the phrase. Everybody's doing it. How old is that phrase? And yet it still works, right? Peer pressure. Everybody's doing it. In the home, and the workplace, and school. I mean, everybody cheats a little bit. Everybody steals. Everybody drinks alcohol or smokes or, or tries drugs or has sex. I mean, everybody's doing it. You want to know what everybody's doing it really means? Let me give you the definition. Everybody's doing it really means this. I'm doing it, and I hope that you'll do it so I won't be the only one. Because literally not everybody's doing it because you're not. They're trying to get you to do it. Oh, we buy into the lie. As young people, we buy into the lie. Young adults, adults, we buy into the lie. Everybody's doing it. So I've got to do it. I've got to fit in. Naomi's using this on Ruth. Uh, Orpah left. Orpah went home. Orpah went back to her family. Orpah went back to her gods. Listen, the enemy's going to do that very same thing. Satan is clever. If, if flattery or emotion or reasoning and arguments don't work on you to get you away from God and back towards your sinful life, guess what? Old faithful will be pulled out. Everybody's doing it. No need to go to church. No need to read your Bible. No need to pray. No need to do this or that. Everybody's doing this, so jump in and join. What it really means is, I'm doing something wrong and something sinful. Would you join me? But check out Ruth's incredible declaration of wholehearted devotion to God. Verse 16, Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It's almost as if Ruth is having a stronger and more of a wholehearted commitment to God that she doesn't know that she's choosing to serve than Naomi, who had known and grown up in that. She's choosing a wholehearted devotion to God. Orpah had a half-hearted. She turned back. She went back. I think God's speaking to you. God's nudging me, saying, no matter what, no matter the situation, no matter what you face, no matter the storm, no matter the burdens, no matter what the world offers to you, don't go back. Don't turn back. Be wholeheartedly committed and devoted to God. Will we be wholehearted or half-hearted? Hearted. Orpah was half-hearted. She turned back towards the Lord, uh, but only went so far, and she then turned back to Moab. Let us, you and I, be wholeheartedly, faithfully committed to God. Good decisions will come when we turn to or return to God. Good decisions require wholehearted devotion. And finally this morning, good decisions involve personal responsibility. Ooh. We don't like those words very well. 
Personal responsibility, personal accountability. Verse 19, it says, the two of them continued on their journey. It says, when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked? She said in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. If you remember from last week, we said her name, Naomi, means sweetness. She's basically saying, that ain't me. Don't call me sweet. Don't call me sweetness. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. She said, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter. I'm not sweet. I'm bitter. Things are tough. And here's what's happened. She, she's echoing verse 13. Remember, back in verse 13, she said, life's bitter and God's raised his fist against me. So don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. She goes a little further in verse 21. I mean, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. I had everything. But now when I come back, I've got nothing. She's shaking her fist at God. She's blaming God. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And in case you weren't aware, the young Moabite woman. It's mentioned in there. She is a young Moabite She's not from Israel. She's not this Israelite. She's a Moabite woman coming back. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Literary terms, this might be a little bit of what we would call foreshadowing. Remember reading about that in school? and You're reading a novel. You're reading a, a piece of, of literature. And they kind of, the author hints at what's about to come later on. Here, we close out chapter 1 by saying it's late spring and the beginning of harvest. Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen in the rest of the book. God must be up to something good, and I declare that he is. Because many times, you and I don't see it. You and I look around, and it seems like everything's happening. It seems like life stinks. Life is bitter, like Naomi's saying. God wants you to know, listen, just hold on, hang on. I'm at work. The returning at the beginning of barley harvest, chapter 2 and 3 and 4, is going to flesh out what that means and what God does. But when you and I, if we're wanting to make good, godly decisions, we must involve and include some personal responsibility. Rather than doing what Naomi does here, which is to blame God, take some personal responsibility for our choices. It, it, it's natural. As human beings, don't we deflect? Don't we blame? It's not my fault. It's his. It's hers. I mean, back to the beginning of time, right? Beginning of the word of God. Adam and Eve. Well, Adam, you ate the apple. Yeah, well, she gave it to me. Well, Eve, you ate the apple. Yeah, well, the servant gave it to me. Not my fault. He did it. She did it. They did it. You did it. God did it. And so often, we, we don't take a personal responsibility for choices and decisions we have made. 
that's where we find Naomi. So to make a good decision, we've got to take some personal responsibility. Today, the question we hear a lot, not just at funerals, but in life, it's why, God? Why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my loved one? Why am I facing this physical difficulty? Why am I facing a financial challenge? Why, why, why? And sometimes, sometimes our decisions have played a part in it. Not all the time, but many times, choices that we make, some of them sinful choices that we make, lead consequences. But we don't want to hear that. We just want to blame. We want to blame somebody else in our family, in our job, and it's easy to shake our fist, look at the sky, and say, God, why? Naomi's doing that. But rewind with me a little bit. What happened at the beginning of the book of Ruth? We covered it last week. Was it God who instructed them to leave the land of Judah, to leave Bethlehem? Bethlehem means house of bread. Did God instruct them to leave? No. Elimelech, Naomi, and the sons left Bethlehem and Judah, not God. Now, where did they go? Did they go someplace else in the land of Judah, someplace else in, in the land that God was overseeing? No. They go to another country, not just any country, but Moab. We talked about it last week. God said, Moab is my foot basin, wash basin. It's the dirty place. It, it, it's dirty, filthy, stinky, rotten, sinful. That's what I think of Moab. And that's where they went. Did God tell them to leave? No. Did God tell them to go to Moab? No. While there, both sons, Malon and Kilion, married Moabite women. Did God instruct them? Did God challenge them to marry women from a sinful Moab? No. And so along the way, Elimelech dies and the sons die, and then they shake their hands and shake their fists at God and say, why God? When many times it's of our own choosing. In fact, they stayed there. Naomi and her daughters-in-law, it's 10 years later when she's now determining to go back. Did God tell her to stay away for 10 years? No. Every step of the way, these were decisions of Elimelech and or Naomi together. But who gets the blame? I'm going to shake my fist at God. When you and I want to make good decisions, it's going to involve personal responsibility. I've sinned. I've messed up. I've made a wrong decision. God cleanse me. God forgive me. I'm going to turn or return back to you. But I'm going to take responsibility for things that I've chosen, things that I've done. So we, we close chapter one on some good news, uh, some good notes. We start with bad decisions. It comes when we abandon God. It, it, it leads to some incredibly Dire circumstances, and those circumstances impact others. But the rest of chapter 2, guide us towards good decisions. Good decisions come when we turn or return back to God. They require a wholehearted devotion, and they involve personal responsibility on our part. We'll close with the scripture that we closed with last week, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. 
Don't make bad decisions. Make good decisions, godly decisions, and they begin with God. 